Welcome to Civil Discourse. This podcast will use government documents to illuminate the workings of the American government and offer context around the effects of government agencies in your everyday life. And now your hosts, Nia Rogers, public affairs librarian, and Dr. John Augenbaugh, political science professor. Good morning, y'all. Good morning, Nia. How are you? Good morning. I'm good. How are y'all? Lovely. Thank you. Um, so uh, listeners will hear that I am saying y'all because uh, not because I've suddenly decided Augie has multiple personalities, but because we have a, <laughs> you might, but that's not something we're getting into in this podcast. Um, but because we have a guest, we have um, Judy Twig with us today, and uh, Professor Twig studies all kinds of cool stuff in political science. Um, but today we're going to pick her brain about. Uh, this Russian situation with Mr. Navalny, because I am fascinated by all of it. I'm, I don't really understand any of the players. I don't really understand what's going on, except that I know that even if, uh, so I know that Mr. Navalny is not particularly warm and fuzzy, but he is to the West warmer and fuzzier than Mr. Putin. And so that makes him our go-to yay guy, I think. I think that I have that right on the players, but if you could tell me who the players are and why they are where they are, I would appreciate it. Sure. Thanks for having me on, Nia and Augie. It's great to talk with you. Um, So let's talk Russian politics. Um, So a little bit of background that is probably familiar to your listeners is that um, Vladimir Putin has been in power in Russia for more than 20 years now. Um, He has set up... uh, sort of soft authoritarian kleptocracy um, in which he and a small circle of people around him remain in power primarily for purposes of making a lot of money uh, in by exploiting Russia's national resources. Yeah, I have a question. question. Sorry, I raised, uh, listeners can't see me, but I'm raising my hand. Um, (laughs) Didn't Putin just build like a great big wonking house by the ocean. Yeah, we're going to get to that. That's, oh, okay. Um, that's uh, that's so it's Alexa good to be Putin. Offerings, yeah. So, uh, so yeah. For more than twenty years, it's been very good to be Putin. Yeah, you know, he's at the apex of a system that basically steals from the Russian people uh, systematically, sells off Russia's oil and natural gas and other mineral resources. Um, has unbelievably complicated webs of shell companies and offshore bank accounts and and schemes that you know you and I couldn't even begin to decipher and and understand but that have shown up in in documents like the leaked Panama papers um, you know we, we we're pretty sure that we, we have a handle on on at least the broad outlines of what they're doing um, and so it's Putin who comes from a security services background and an intelligence services KGB background who has presided over Russia using allies from his days in the KGB um, to uh, basically preserve his own personal wealth and the wealth that he has allowed to accumulate in a small circle of people around him. Um, He got lucky. Um, I I often say Putin's one of the luckiest politicians in world history because I don't think he's a particularly skilled politician. 
he was a mid-level bureaucrat that just yeah. happened to be able to suck up to people in the right places at the right time and rise to power me meteorically in, in the late 1990s, um, largely because he offered to protect outgoing President Boris Yeltsin. That name ring a bell? Um, yeah. Um, uh, back in the 1990s. Um, and, and so it literally comes out of nowhere within just a, a period of a couple of years in the late 1990s and then finds himself president of the country in, uh, in 2000. Um, so he gets lucky because oil and natural gas prices go through the ceiling as we go through the mid 2000s. And so all of a sudden he's got a ton of money to play with. And so no matter how sort of inept he's been at governance, he's had a lot of resources to dole out, um, sometimes to the Russian people, but even more than that, to his cronies, to those around him in the government. But uh, you get the picture. He has set yeah. up an authoritarian uh, kleptocracy in which uh, dissent is barely tolerated. Um, and when I say dissent is barely tolerated, one of the Kremlin techniques for dealing with dissent has been to manufacture it. Um, you know, that they've set up a yeah. series of sham opposition parties to make it appear as though there's an actual political process going on. Oh, and okay. So if I pay my enemy and I pay him to look like my enemy, but not really be very good at being my enemy, then I look like I have an enemy, but I don't really have a good one. Right. Okay. And, I look, and I look like I'm winning free and fair elections when in yeah, fact they, I'm not. Right? Yeah, that was my next question, Judy. I mean, the Russian government still claims worldwide that it is a democracy. Yes. Right? Yes. You know, they have regular elections. Um, you know, they have a constitution. So, I mean, th there is the appearance still of a democratic regime, even though there is, as you just pointed out, extensive evidence that it's it's not a democracy by any stretch of any textbook definition. Mm -hmm. So, and this is an important point, Augie, like put a pin in this because we're gonna come back to it because I, I think that your point is an analytic tool that we can use to understand what's happening right now um, with, with the Russian people, um, regardless of how we've complained about how their democracy is a sham, most of the Russian people have been, yeah, okay, fine. You know, they, they've kind of bought into the, the process. They've bought into the illusion of democracy for you know, 20 years now. Um, and what's happening with Navalny and their reaction to the protests that have leapt out into the streets um, because of how Navalny has been treated since he came back from being poisoned uh, last summer. And we'll get into the details of that in a few minutes. Um, but they, they've gone too far. The regime has gone too far. Okay. It is now brutally cracking down on peaceful protesters. And it's very clearly um, treating Navalny in ways that are outside the boundaries of any legitimate democratic political process, it's, it's throwing back that curtain much farther than it's ever been thrown back before. Yeah. And the Russian people are starting to think, huh, hmm. um, wow, I didn't maybe, see this before, but now I do. Yeah. Maybe Mr. Putin isn't as, as good a whatever as we thought he was. Or, or maybe, you know, maybe his time, I mean, I, I was going to say maybe his time is up, but his, his time isn't up. I think we're about to enter a period of prolonged stalemate. 
between you know the the forces of Putin and and the opposition forces. What's and 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 we've been at that for a while, right? I mean, Russia had Russia had big protests back, you know, 10 years ago, back in 2011. So I think we've been at a low level stalemate for a decade, but the the forces of opposition have just seen their legitimacy and I think their numbers um, ratchet up to to a new level with what's happened with Navalny. So it's going to be a more more unstable stalemate uh, for a while. Can I, I, so I, my perception of this is that it is more widespread than previous than previous uprising like most it seems to me that most of the protests in the past have been mostly in moscow right they've they yeah. haven't really spread across the country and so uh, people in the rest of the country are like yeah those people in moscow they're always complaining about something right like and now it's reaching other parts of the country were like, hey, we're complaining about it now. And that's starting to be more um, grassroots kind of. Yep, absolutely. So let's um, let's be systematic, um, but brief about this. So let's go back to 2011. I mentioned the protests in 2011, which which were largely spearheaded by Navalny. Navalny is, I think, 44 years old now, but he's been around. He's been one of the most vocal members of the you know, small but committed opposition in in Russia for a very long time. Um, you you started our conversation earlier, Nia, by observing that Navalny isn't necessarily a warm and fuzzy kind of guy. Um, he's not. Navalny has flirted with some pretty racist Russian nationalist opinions. Yeah. Um, you know, he he hasn't always been this beacon of Western liberal democratic ideas, right? But what he has consistently been. Um, you know, if you look for the thread of consistency through his um, his argument, it's been about justice and and corruption, right? That that, yeah. you know, he, that the corruption thread has been the thing that he's he's consistently pulled on. Um, so back in 2011, the protests were about um, clearly falsified results in a parliamentary election. Yeah. And people came pouring out into the streets, like you said, Nia, mostly in Moscow and St. Petersburg. And there are a couple of things that are wrapped up in that. One is that the government controls virtually all of the print and broadcast media. So it's easy for the government to say, you know, all of these things you're hearing are just Western provocation. Um, (laughs) That the truth is, you know, some truth that we spin out that makes it look like we're fine. And importantly, you know, Navalny and his little crew of oppositionists, and it, you know, Navalny has an opposition party, but there were many other small opposition movements as well. And one of the problems up until now has been that that opposition has been so fractured that it hasn't yeah. been able to coalesce against against the regime. Um, but the regime has done a pretty good job of painting all of that opposition as a um, not just a tool of the United States and the West, but as being fully funded by. George Soros, you know, your standard line about about how these kinds of things um, operate. Can I I just side note that apparently George Soros is responsible for everything. (laughs) 
Like, if anybody wants to blame anything that happens, there was an earthquake in Chile, George Soros did it. There was, you know what I mean? Like, you stubbed your toe, it was probably George Soros came in and moved the furniture when you weren't looking. Like, this guy is viewed by, he, he's almost godlike in his powers of the things he is, he's, he's accused of. Like, good grief he must never get a night's sleep because he's out doing so much stuff to every side that wants to complain about something right anybody who wants to come like golly how did he i wonder we should do an episode augie on how he became the world's boogeyman like what Um, on earth well so in, in 25 words or less he made a huge amount of money um basically with currency trading back as the soviet bloc was falling apart um, and he has used a fair amount of that money to support democracy initiatives in Russia, the former Soviet Union. So, you know, when Russia says it's foreign money that's pushing a lot of these ideas about free press, freedom of speech, uh, democratic institutions, uh, free, fair elections. Um, yep, we sure have. Proud of it. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Okay. I mean, if you're going to throw blame our way, yeah, sure, we'll take the blame on that, right? Although, <laughs> although we we have a lot of, um, we also claim that Russia does a lot with our elections and trying to destabilize our elections and hacking in the United States. Like a lot of that's just big world power versus big world power saying the other guy is being terrible about us, right? Because China does that and we do that to China. That's a once you reach a certain world powerness, we all treat each other with a certain amount of suspicion and blame. And Well, Judy's talked at length in a number of public forum about how when other nations complain about the U.S. role in fomenting dissent in their countries, there is historical evidence that we did during the Cold War, right? I mean, it's not like we can go ahead and say our hands are clean. Right. right. And we've right. also installed governments in places. We're like, here, this is going to be your new president. And they go, uh, OK. So, I mean, I yeah, think that the major I, players. The, do yeah. So excellent points. During the Cold War, we were in, you know, obviously an ideologically driven, but yeah. also like you say, Mia, you know, just a straight up. Um, you know, anarchic system of international politics, bipolar competition, where both the United States and the Soviet Union um, befriended some horrendous characters around. Terrible. Uh, in, in, in order to further our position in that bilateral competition. Um, you know, it, did the United States support some evil dictatorial regimes? Yes. Was in in a I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but was it in the service of backing the side that was right in that bipolar Cold War competition? Um, yeah. Would you have rather lived in the liberal, democratic, free, open the United States or the closed, autocratic, genocidal Soviet Union during the Cold War? Right. So, so even during the Cold War, you can acknowledge that both sides used horrendous tactics but that the ends to which those means were being employed were different. Um, you know, now after the Cold War, sure. um, I, I think that it, it's a qualitatively different story and I would caution against a false equivalence here. Um, 
you know, yeah, we have funded, the United States has funded non-governmental institutions, civil society activists in Russia and other parts of Eurasia and other parts of the world that are advocating for open information, freedom of religion, freedom of press, free speech, um, the right to peaceably assemble, the right to peaceably yeah. assemble, um, you know, a- and the holding of legitimately free and fair elections. Russian interference in the United States and other countries around the world has been in the service of manipulating elections so that their outcomes are not the genuine will of the people and deliberately spreading disinformation and deliberately trying to create doubt among populations around the world about what truth even is. Um, Those aren't equivalent things. This is another one where, you know, you can say, of course, there are problems in the United States and we could talk about those forever. But God, what Russia is doing here is worse. And it's very different than what the United States is doing. I I completely agree. Um, I'm sorry if I sounded like I was making a false equivalence. Everybody accuses everybody, but some people are more right than others when they make their accusations, right? (laughs) Um, I think is what I I should have clarified my point to. I I also think um, in the United States, for the most part, I, I can't guarantee every single time, but I don't think we go around poisoning our dissidents either. Like, that's yeah. not a thing we do where they're like, excuse me, I'm going to poke you with this umbrella and give you radiation poisoning. Like, we don't, mm-hmm. we don't do that. We don't, yeah, and in the example- we don't jail people for three lifetimes. Like, we don't, you know what I mean? Like, that's not our thing with our dissidents. People in jail who say, I'm a dissident that they get a different kind of hearing than they do in the United States because we want to make sure we're not doing that to people. We're not sort of <clears throat> piling on and piling on and piling on to the point that we try to kill their movement or whatever. And I'm not just thinking in Russia, but also the former South Africa where dissidents mm-hmm. were jailed for huge lengths of time right, in an effort to stomp out their movements. Uh, mm-hmm. India uh, did that for a while, too. So, uh, you know, whatever, whatever crimes the United States commits, and I, I will grant that there are many, um, we, don't, we don't murder our dissidents. That's not a thing we do, um, and a, not a thing we tolerate. Right. As is seen in our recent... Our you know, recent political feelings. Black men down in the streets, um, at least we have a system that acknowledges that that's wrong. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. That that's not okay. And and people are allowed to say that's not okay publicly and not be punished yes. for saying yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so back to Navalny here. Back to Navalny. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so, you, so you saw protests back in 2011 that there was a crackdown. Um, at that point. Um, and, and part of that crackdown, since we're talking about George Soros and the Western role, um, part of that crackdown was um, a series of laws on foreign agents and the permissible activity of non-governmental organizations in Russia that basically began what's been a, a progression of narrowing of the space for anybody in Russia to speak out and definitely anybody in Russia to work with any kind of Western or foreign partnership or funding. So 
you know, USAID, all of the other bilateral development agencies left Russia because it, we were putting our Russian partners at risk by yeah. being there. Um, you know, Soros isn't there anymore. Um, it, you know, the, the whole idea that you can work with Russian civil society partners now is hugely problematic because because of the situation. Okay, so what so what is, has Navalny done? Um, so <laughs> in, over the last um, ten years or so, the way he has primarily um, expressed his opinion is through YouTube videos. Um, he, his greatest skill is as a, an investigative journalist now, where he's put together these exposés about the incredible corruption, um, unexplained wealth of Russian public officials, you know, that there have been a pretty good handful of them now. And they're, you know, one to two hours long, where he just systematically goes through with interviews and documents and, and film footage and lays out the case for the kleptocracy. Um, and he's good at it. He's got a really sort of sharp, sarcastic sense of humor that is particularly well received by young people in oh, Russia. Hey, whoa, 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 whoa. Not only young people. I've watched like a half a dozen of those. Oh, okay. yeah. yeah. Okay, they're they're good stuff. Okay. Yeah, they are good stuff. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So for our listeners, are they captioned or does he speak in English or how, how um, would our listeners watch he them? Says the time at Yale, um, but they're actually with uh, with subtitles. Okay. Yes. So yeah, yeah. so you can yeah you can, you, can, you can go you can go find them. So there's so there's an important point to be made here about generational shift in Russia while while we're on this subject because for a while you know up until a few years ago when we talked about young people politically in Russia. Um, we called people in the sort of 18 to 24 age bracket, we called them Putin's people, the Putin generation. Putin's approval ratings were higher among those youth than they were among any other age group. And, you know, how do we explain that? Well, Putin was the only leader they'd ever known. Um, Russia was experiencing relative stability and prosperity during, you know, sort of the late 2000s. Um, you know, early 2010s because of all that oil and natural gas wealth. And Putin did a pretty good job of marketing that macho image. You know, he, um, you know, wrestling the tiger, doing the deep sea diving, archaeological expedition, you know, all, all of these, you know, bare-chested horseback riding, right? You know, he had created this persona that was, um, that was marketed very effectively to young people, um, you know, and they, you know, they did it with um, annual Putin calendars, um, rap songs, you know, I mean, it, it's, yeah. Can <laughs> so you imagine like, oh, an American president doing that? Like the <laughs> world yeah. that anybody wants to see is Joe Biden bare chested on a horse chasing yeah. down a tiger. Like, the, uh, no offense to <laughs> Joe Biden or Donald Trump or Obama or any of the other presidents we've had in recent memory. I cannot imagine them doing that or me enjoying watching it. Like, all of that would be the all bad channel. And if you gave me a calendar of that, I would probably burn it. Like, I just, it, like, ew. But that's a, but that's also speaks to something we, we probably don't have time to, which is this sort of desire to see your leader in a very specific way. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and in Russia, after, you know, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the chaotic 90s, 
um, a, a huge amount of social instability with tons of alcohol abuse, drug abuse, you know, all kinds of, of social um, pathologies. Putin comes in and presents this image as someone who is sober, in control, macho, you know, sort of, I'm going to take care of things and we're going to have stability and order again. And he, he hit the right beat at the right time for, for what, what, you know, most Russian people needed. Um, says, you know, so there, you know, there are ups and downs over time, but Putin's popularity really comes to a head in 2014 with the illegal annexation of Crimea. Yeah. And the war in the east in Ukraine, you know, we saw that as appalling, right? As a violation of Ukraine's sovereignty, we still rightly have not recognized it as as legal. But inside Russia, this was correct, not correctly, this was cleverly and successfully played by the Russian state media as a win for Russia, right? You know, they get Crimea back, right? You know, that there it's an assertion of Russia's um legitimate great power status. And after Crimea, Putin's approval ratings, which were already high, went into the stratosphere. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, he peaks in like 2014, 2015, but then, um, you know, economic crisis, sanctions, uh, the impact of counter sanctions, um, things go downhill in terms of the economy um, and, you know, Putin's popularity sort of gets chipped away at after that for a while. And, and Navalny, you know, makes inroads in that um, with this series of, of additional videos. So Navalny is a thorn in their side. Um, was he, was he's, Navalny... He's not a major irritant because he still has, um, you know, relatively low recognition, relatively low approval rating, but he's out there and he just won't stop. Um, go ahead, Nia. You had a question. Was he living in Russia at this time? Oh yes, yeah. He spent um, he spent a couple of months at, in Yale, I think, back in like 20, 2010, 2011, maybe. But no, he Navalny has lived in Russia the whole okay. time. Yeah. Um, so let's bring things forward to um, August of of last year, August of twenty twenty, um, when. Um, in a move that is not unheard of for the Russian security services, um, they try to murder him. Um, they try to poison him with Novichok. Um, this happens in um, Tomsk, Siberia, um, where he's meeting with some of his regional um, regional party leaders. And this is something that, um, just as a footnote here, this is something that Navalny very cleverly and effectively did over the decades since the 2011 protests, as you mentioned earlier, Nina, those Nina, those were mostly in Moscow and St. Petersburg. Navalny has since worked really hard to build networks of opposition all over Russia. So that now he has 11 time zones worth of established party organization, you know, established opposition um, organization to work with. So he's out meeting with some of his allies, some of his team in uh, in Siberia. Um, they put Novichok, we now learn um, later on, in his blue underpants. Um, that's, that's where they put the poison. So he collapses on the airplane. Um, they land in Omsk. 
get him emergency medical treatment from Russian physicians in Omsk, like, you know, right on the ground there, right at the hospital. Those Russian doctors in Omsk save his life. Um, his wife, um, Yulia Navalnaya, um, appeals to Putin to allow him to be medevaced to Germany for medical treatment. And Putin says yes. So off Navalny goes to Germany. Um, they, because they're... I mean, there is nowhere in the Russian healthcare system that, that, that I would go to to save my life if I am on death's door, having been, you know, at this point, they think maybe poisoned with some substance. They, you know, they don't know at this point. Yeah. But if I'm in crisis and somebody can medevac me to Germany, I am not staying in Russia, right? You know, you, you want good healthcare. Um, well, but I'm a little surprised that Putin said yes. If Putin was trying to kill him, Putin should have just said, no, you have to go to the local hospital and hope the doctors there are really good. But correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Judy, part of, if you will, the genius of Putin is that he's got layers upon layers between him and any kind of effort to squelch opposition. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's got layers upon layers in, pro- in regards, I mean, from, again, I just, you know, I briefly read the the, the Panama Bank, you know, paper, oh, yeah. papers report, but he's so distanced, okay, from any wrongdoing that if he didn't go ahead and say, yes, you can, meta, you know, he can be medevac to Germany, it would actually mean his hands would get dirty. And so far, there is so many people and so many layers between Putin and any kind of decision in regards to plundering the nation's resources of of corrupt wealth, etc. I would have been shocked if he had said no. Ah. Okay, because at that point, his hands would have been all over the effort, okay, to kill an opposition leader. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. Okay. So she played that really smartly then. Um, his wife by asking oh, yes, by yes. asking for Putin's mercy because he was in he was not in a position to say no. Yeah, and it's okay. at some point at some point, Mia. Let's do another podcast episode on the role the wives are playing in bringing down autocratic regimes in Eurasia. Uh, I'm in Belarus. Yeah, it's it's becoming a systemic thing now. It's remarkable. But anyway, um, so so he goes to Germany. The German doctors save his life. Um, he is in a coma for weeks. He emerges from the coma, but needs continued treatment after he becomes conscious again. Um, and so he, he's undergoing you know sort of outpatient therapy in Germany for months. Um, and then a couple of weeks ago. Um, he says, I'm coming back to Russia. You know, I'm not going to hide. Russia's my country. I, I know what's going to happen to me the minute I step foot on Russian soil. Um, but, I, you know, there's a fight to be fought, and I'm going to fight it inside Russia. So it was amazing. Um, and I, I don't remember the date. Let's, let me, uh, I'll Google it real quick. <laughs> Oh, the date of his return. The date of his return. It to was Russia. Crazy. But I, I have to say, it takes a lot of stones to say, I yeah, know that, yeah. um, that if I hit yeah. the tarmac, I'm going to prison, but I'm going yeah. anyway. 
So it's this remarkable thing because it's all being live streamed, right? Well, I'm sorry. So what day was that? It was January 17th. Okay. Um, so um, Navalny, you know, everybody knew what flight he was on. You know, all of us Russia watchers are actually on Twitter and on um, Telegram. The Telegram is the most used social media channel in, in Russia. So we're on Twitter and we're on Telegram um, actually watching the flight tracker. So we're watching, you know, the little dot is his flight from Berlin to, uh, to Moscow is moving through the air. Um, he was originally scheduled, that flight was scheduled to arrive at one of Moscow's several international airports. And it snowed that night. So at the last minute, they announced that they had had a breakdown of the snow clearing equipment at the airport where he was supposed to land and where all the media was gathered. And so they diverted that flight to one of Russia's other international airports. Of course. So, they I mean, you know, and this is amazing because, you know, there are a couple hundred passengers on this plane and now all the people picking them up have to go to the other airport. Right. You know, it's not just Navalny, but we've got everybody on this flight with their phones, you know, filming Alexei and Yulia and Navalny, um, you know, in their seats on the plane, you know, uh, you know, and, and people are saying things on Twitter like, you know, Alexei had the window seat. He made his wife sit in the middle seat, you know, making jokes about things like that. Right. Um, um, the person behind them was filming them in the row. And while Alexei Navalny is on the flight that is certainly taking him to his imprisonment and maybe death in Russia, um, he is watching cartoons on his iPad. Um, <laughs> so, you know, so we got all these details, right? Because everything happens live now. Um, so we watch him get off the plane. You know, people are filming him. Um, both, you know, regular people and journalists are, you know, chronicling this as he gets off the plane. Um, you know, he goes through baggage claim and then he goes through passport control and nobody comes near him until he gets to passport control because until he goes through passport control, he's in no man's land, right? But the minute he goes through passport control, he's stepping onto Russian soil. And so they are there ready to arrest him. Um, and, and so, you know, he goes through the gate, he kisses his wife goodbye, standing there in the passport control gate. It's the most heartbreaking thing you can imagine. Um, and then off he goes. Um, so they held his hearing two days ago. So here's what he was charged with. He was charged with violating the parole of a sentence that he had been given several years ago for a, a trumped up fraud case. And, and the details of the case aren't important. What's important is that um, he had been given a three and a half year jail term. Um, he served about a year of that under house arrest and they suspended the sentence. So he had about two years, two and a half years left of a suspended sentence during which he was on parole. Okay, so what they held the hearing for the other day, and again, this is all, they didn't allow cameras in the courtroom, but there were reporters in the courtroom. So we're all following this live as, you know, as it happens, we're hearing what everybody is saying. What the hearing was about was his not checking in twice a week as he was supposed to as a condition of his parole. While he was in a coma. 
while he's in a coma so that literally the judge is going, you know, the prosecution is going, blah, 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 blah. You violated the terms of your parole. And Navalny is sitting there literally while they're talking, you know, talking over them, just saying the words coma. What part of coma is difficult for you to understand, right? Yeah. So basically, they, you know, they poisoned him. They tried to kill him. And now they are imprisoning him for having survived. Right? Good Lord. So good Lord, right? Okay, no, but this, this gets better. It gets better which, with what's happening today. So, so the hearing the other day was, um, was about whether or not he violated the terms of his parole. Um, so they say you got to serve the remaining two and a half years of your sentence because you violated the terms of your parole. And so off they sent him to prison. Um, during the hearing, he managed to make about a 15-minute speech about what a sham this was and, and what's really going on here. And I, you know, the, the speech is available in translation. Um, there's a Russian uh, website called Meduza, M-E-D-U-Z-A, that does a tremendous amount of both Russian and English language reporting. Um, and, and they translate a lot of Russian speeches and documents and things like that. So you can find his speech in English um, on Medusa and many other places. I actually think the New York Times published it um, the other day. But it's extraordinary. It's a landmark political speech that just lays out, you know, what, what the values are that are being attacked here and, and what Navalny's position is. Um, so, you know, an amazing thing in, in Russian politics. Um, so, um, a couple of other things happened in the interim, but let me just bring you up to the judicial process as it exists today, because right now they've got Navalny in jail for two and a half more years. They want to keep him in jail for much longer than that. So this morning, as we speak, he is in court on another case that was pending before him. Yeah. That case is about having violated a Russian statute that makes it illegal to defame publicly a veteran of World War II. And back in the spring, when Russia had its big referendum uh, on amending its constitution to make it possible for Putin to basically stay in power for the rest of his life, um, the Russian government in trumping up support for this referendum uh, made some videos that were you know, basically propaganda campaign videos to support, again, Putin being allowed to stay in power for the rest of his life. And there was this 95-year-old war veteran who was used in this video, speaking in favor of Putin. And Navalny made a comment back then on social media that it was shameful to use this old man in, in the service of, uh, of this you know, appalling referendum and constitutional change. So... <laughs> This hearing today is carrying through the prosecution of Navalny for having defamed this 95-year-old war veteran. So what was happening, and the reason I was a few minutes late for our, uh, to get our broadcast started this morning, is I was following what's going on in this hearing because they've got this 95-year-old guy testifying during the hearing. And he, you know, by video, right, he's clearly struggling this 95 year old man, you know, they've got him reading a statement and he's barely getting through it. And Navalny is speaking out of turn at the hearing saying, you know, this is evil. What you're doing to this man, yeah, Stop yeah. It. 
let him go. And at the beginning of the hearing, Navalny said, if this man has a heart attack during this hearing, because of what you're doing to him, this is on you. You're killing this man. And after they get about three hours into the hearing, he broke down. The 95-year-old man broke down and the ambulances were on their way. So Navalny called it three hours early. So I... Okay, side note. It's incredible what's happening. Um, And as a side note, the life expectancy for a Russian male, 95 is about 20 years beyond that. So this guy is already on what we would think of as borrowed time, right? He's already well past a a normal Russian life expectancy. And you're putting him through this. Uh, I. Whatever else Navalny may or may not have said in the past, he I'm totally on his side with this. That is an evil thing to do to use yes, yeah. To try to use this old man to keep you in power, you you scum sucker. Yeah. That's just well so and, I, I'm just going on record as saying Vladimir Putin is a scum sucker. There. Yep, and if he listens that. to yep. this podcast, so there. You can come here and try to bring it up with me if you want to. Yeah. Um, Navalny, you know, I, your, your statement implies that there, you know, we had reason to kind of, um, kind of question Navalny as a, you know, sort of democratic oppositionist before because of some of the very unattractive uh, positions he's flirted with in the past, um, but. But for me and for everybody who's watching closely, um, Navalny got us into their camp pretty firmly when he took that flight back to Russia in mid-January. I mean, yeah. I, the, the bravery, the courage, the commitment to your ideals, the willingness, I mean, quite literally, to put your life on the line. Um, it's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. He goes down in the annals of Russian history. He goes down in the history of the global struggle of democracy against authoritarianism as, as a hero, as a paragon. I mean, it, it is, it's extraordinary what, what he did um, because he, he knew exactly what was going to happen, right? So, so let's, um, I know we're coming down to the uh, end of the time that we have left for the broadcast. So let's make sure we get to some of the big picture, what this means for, for Russian politics question. So Navalny comes back to Russian soil and people, and calls for a protest. Um, he, as soon as he, re- literally a couple hours after he touched down in the airplane on Russian soil and was arrested, he released a video that he had obviously been spending a lot of time making while he was in, Ger- in Germany called Putin's Palace. That is about a two hour video that goes through uh, the um, sort of construction and shell company ownership of this one and a half billion dollar palace on the Black Sea that has been made for Putin. And the message is that Putin is addicted to luxury, um, that you know, he, he is a man of greed and avarice. And and you know, he he's again, he is stealing from the Russian people, when more and more Russian people are falling into poverty, um, when wages are going down, when they're having to put price controls on, on you know, bread and sugar, and this is what your leader is doing. It's a really effective video. Um, one of the memorable things from the video are the gold-plated toilet brushes um, that have become sort of a symbol of the protest now. People are going out and getting toilet 
brushes and spray painting of gold and carrying them in the uh, in the protest. So so locking up Navalny again, arresting him in conjunction with that video brought more people out in the streets to protest than we've seen since 1991 you know, since the collapse of the Soviet Union. And and Nia, the point that you made earlier is, is a key one. It wasn't just in Moscow and St. Petersburg. Oh, it yeah. was all across the country in major numbers. Um, they did everything they could to keep it from being young people. Um, one of the things that's very much changed in the last couple of years is that um, in, in an astonishingly short period of time, um, that 18 to 24 year old age group and younger, the teenagers have gone from being Putin's biggest supporters to being Putin's biggest doubters or critics. And the number one reason for that is the internet, right? These kids are getting their news from Navalny's YouTube videos, a couple of other really um, high profile uh, YouTube bloggers in Russia. Um, they're making TikTok videos and showing them to each other that that are, you know, sort of brutally, sarcastically making fun of Putin. Um, Putin, through these videos, especially with young people, is increasingly being portrayed as Navalny's line is um, like the old grandpa in a bunker, right? Making fun of Putin for having retreated to his bunker during COVID um, and, you know, taking all of his meetings from his secure um, location. They're portraying him as clueless, out of touch, ineffective, all of these other things besides just corrupt. And that whole package of image shifting that's happening with Putin is really grabbing young people in a major way. Um, so that in Moscow and a couple of other cities last weekend when the protests were planned, um, parents of teenagers were being required in some places to check in by text message on an hourly basis to confirm that they knew where their child was. <laughs> Not out on the street protesting, right? Oh, so, so, so that way you can punish the parent. It tries to make the yes, parents. Yes, exactly. Your kid at home. That's yeah. brilliant. I mean, if you're going to stomp that out, that's yeah. that's one way to do it is to say to the parents you won't have a job you won't have a home you won't have if your kid goes to protest right and also what what we've learned from talking with russian teenagers is that many of them are deterred by the idea that they could cause harm to their family yeah in process yeah. yeah so so now we're in a situation where I think for the first time, Putin is genuinely afraid. He's afraid of what's been unleashed here. Well, and until now, he's had control over all the media in Russia. But it turns out no one can control the Internet. Like anybody who thinks, I mean, Google thinks they can control the Internet, but like nobody controls the Internet. It, right. It does what it will do. And once people have access to it, they get yeah. ideas. They yeah, get other people's ideas okay. for good or for ill. Yeah, right. because so there's no, yeah, well, there's no filter, right? Right. right. I, mean, I mean, there's no press organization, whether it's controlled by the government, okay, or not. There's, there's no talking head that is filtering the message, telling you what to think, okay? You pull up, and again, I, 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 no, I, I'm, I have a little bit of education, right? But I pulled up, you know, one of Navalny's, you know, YouTube videos. And I started watching it, okay, and I was captivated, right? Yes. I, I, okay, I, I, I it, it was good stuff, right? 
And, and like, you know, and Judy, like you said, there, there's a level of sarcasm there, okay, that appealed to me so that even if I didn't believe what he was saying, I was entertained. Yeah. I was entertained, yeah. right? Yeah. Okay. Well, and that's a great way to reach young people is, is infotainment right, is the idea of combining those two things. Sorry, Judy, yeah. you were going to give us one last, yeah. I think, thought yeah. on. So, so it's looking forward. I think there are two key things that, that all the hallmarks of the fear that Putin is experiencing right now. One is that the brutality of the police crackdown on protesters is qualitatively different than anything we've seen before. Um, they are bashing heads. They're using tear gas. They are detaining orders of magnitude more people than we've seen before to the point where they don't know what to do with them all, right? They have busloads full of protesters who are now just, you know, sitting lined up at detention centers. They're keeping people in, you know, minus 10, minus 20 degree weather. Um, they're keeping them in unheated buses for days at a time because they don't have physical infrastructure um, in their detention infrastructure to uh, to keep them in. So the, the level of the level and scale of the violence, the state violence in response to the protest is is a sign of Putin's fear. And it also is going to backfire. Right. That there are people who are getting caught up in this. Um, word is getting out more and more about the senseless violence and more and more people are starting to sympathize with or join the opposition because of it. Yeah. Um, second thing that's happening, just playing off um, your point about how you can't control the Internet. I mean, some countries do control the Internet, right? China controls the Internet. You know, you go to China and you can't pull up CNN.com, right? Russia is talking a lot about yeah. trying to make moves in that direction. And, oh, I cannot imagine what it's going to be like, um, not if, but when they try to move in that direction. Because this regime, you know, for all its brutality, is not stupid. They understand what these open channels of information and exchange mean for their hold on power. So they, they've already talked about uh, creating what they call a sovereign internet. <laughs> which would be controlled by Russia. Um, you know, Russia is home to some of the most skilled information technology professionals in the world. Yep. Um, if they try to shut down the internet, you're going to see a couple of things. One is a brain drain of those IT professionals, even more uh, severe than has already been the case to come West to find work because they can't work in, you know, they can't make money and, and use their skill set in, in a closed um, internet environment anymore. Um, but also people are going to find ways to get around it. People are going to rebel against it. Um, you know, again, this will backfire. This will be a last straw for people. Yeah, when I was reading that that might be contemplated by the Russian government, I was just like, but Russia is home to some of the most skilled hackers in the world, okay? I mean, and yes, they may have been employed by, you know, subsidiaries of the government, et cetera, okay? But they've hacked our election system, yep. okay? They've gone around the world and fomented, if you will, okay, all kinds of shenanigans, okay, via technology. Well, well what so what that... What does the Russian government think is going to happen if 
because if they leave, I mean, you give them a reason to want to go ahead and punish the government that has now forced you to live in the West. I mean, and China, so contrast to China again, right? You know, China maintains all these controls on internet access in China. Um, I mean, there are protests all the time all over China that we don't hear much about. But so far in the grand scheme of things, um, you know, the, the grand bargain in China with, with the people is that we'll put up with your restrictions in exchange for steadily increasing living standards. Um, yeah. Russia, Russia is not delivering on steadily increasing living standards anymore. This is no longer a bargain that, that the government is able to... Uh, to keep yeah, you know what? Them. Hunger changes everything. Mm-hmm. But the, the, the reality is that once people are hungry enough, like physically, literally hungry enough, that's when you get revolution. Because yeah, because you things can only eating. you can yeah, suppress things. a lot of other needs, but you can't suppress the need for food. Like you can't suppress the need for heat and food and shelter. You know that kind of thing. Once it starts to affect those at a level that people feel like they can change, they will. Yeah. And what political science actually teaches us is that it's not when people are at their sort of worst level of misery that they that you have revolution. It's when things have started to get better and then people's expectations begin to rise even more quickly than their circumstances do. Ah. And it's that gap between expectation and circumstances that leads to revolution. Well, in Russia, you've had this increase of living standards starting, you know, 15 years ago. And now you're seeing the curve of living standards go back down again. So it's when, you know, people expect the curve to continue to rise, but it starts to, uh, to go in the other direction. So we might be seeing a revolution, another Russian um, revolution. I... At, at, so, don't um, crush my hopes, so Judy. Layers to this. Um, <laughs> my, I mean, Putin has the security forces so tightly under his control that my prediction, if I had to predict, would be for a pretty prolonged, messy stalemate rather than revolution anytime soon. Um, because you know, as much as as much as we're heartened by seeing tens of thousands of people out on the streets protesting in favor of democracy and human rights all over the country. What really matters in political terms is whether or not that elite remains united around Putin. And so the the conversations that are happening that matter right now are ones that are completely opaque to us, right? You know, they're, they're the ones that are happening around the business and security elite that surrounds Putin. Um, you know, noting that the business and security elite are like one and the same in this country. Um, but uh, but so there, we already have some signs um, that at least some of those people are beginning to see that this is a system that might not remain tenable in the long term. Okay. Um, and so there's talk about you know, we're pretty sure that there's talk among that elite about the need for change. The problem that you always have in a situation like this is what's your alternative, okay. right? That none of those people want to turn the store over to Navalny, right? They all lose in a big way if that happens. So, you know, if you're going to have a transition. Find, they have to find a less dictatory dictator. 
Right. <laughs> right. I mean, they yes, have to find yeah. a guy who's yeah. keep, who will keep them going, but also be more popular than Putin. <laughs> so like, the, so, or who will make um, a little bit of incremental change that will give the people enough that you can keep yeah. going. And so there's a fine balance there. I can see where that's going to be a, an interesting yep. um, next yeah. couple of years. Yep. Will you come back and talk to us more about it when, as it settles out? Absolutely, of course. <laughs> Yay. Okay, well, thank you so much for, for getting me all uh, worried and stressed out about Mr. Navalny, but also giving me a chance to go and look at his YouTube. I'm assuming that his wife will carry that on in his, abs in his jailed absence, that there'll be other people who will try to help fill that gap. Um, we also don't know how much material he's got banked that Correct. may be good coming point. out and he also has a good he's got a good team so able to carry on the awesome page. thank you so much judy this has been fascinating thanks, sure. judy. thank you Nia. thanks Augie. you've been listening to civil discourse brought to you by vcu libraries Opinions expressed are solely the speaker's own and do not reflect the views or opinions of VCU or VCU libraries. Special thanks to the Workshop for Technical Assistance. Music by Isaac Hobson. Find more information at guides.library.vcu.edu discourse. As always, no documents were harmed in the making of this podcast.